Hello patrons, this is the continuation of my interview with Matt Karp, followed by our after party where we discuss uh, the uses of history today, um, and we'll have a big old debate about that. And I, what, the thing I, I wanted to ask, which I guess it's sort of related to this, is that, you know, does anybody have a golden age? Um, you know, does anybody, do either of these sides in the relationship to the past, which is now in some ways flipped around, liberals wanting to plumb the past and conservatives wanting to kind of forget the past or treat it completely uh, incoherently or opportunistically, whether there's any genuine reference to the past, whether there is a golden age for either. Because I think, you know, following the line of your article, for liberals, they don't, right? For liberals, it's all it's all dark. And for conservatives, it's a little bit opportunistic, but they don't really have lost a sense of, well, you know, whether it's a lost cause of the Confederacy or, you know, the consensus society of the 1950s or whatever else it might be. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I think, I guess, um, I think for the, for the 1619 style liberals, I mean, I do think that just, just classing liberalism in general, I mean, that you're, you're using the terms of the piece, which I, which I, you know, really appreciate, but probably there is a sort of a civil war, if you will, between liberalism, because I think there are still, there is still, you know, especially, you know, the older historians who criticize the 1619 Project, there are, there is a sort of a band of older, you know, Clinton-Obama style liberals who are fighting, you know, maybe a rear guard action to preserve that, some of that sense of, you know, that sort of more Whiggish sense of, you know, everything that's wrong with America can be solved by something that's, by what's right with America, to quote Bill Clinton. Um, and I think that, wing of liberalism still retains, you know, it's kind of, you know, sort of soft hued, you know, golden ages, which generally are the kind of ones, uh, different different versions of the kind of ones that the left would celebrate too, you know, the, the moments of, you know, emancipation and, you know, to some extent for some, the New Deal and, 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 then, and then to some extent, the Second World War. I mean, the, the American Revolution, obviously going back to the beginning. Um, but but I think the new kind of originalist or, or historicist that we've been talking about, no, I think they're 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 resolutely anti-golden age of any kind. And I think on the right, yeah, you know, you might say that occasionally instrumentally, you know, certainly Trump and others, you know, and Carlson actually, you know, Carlson often in my, not that I watch him very regular religiously at all, but like in the clips that, you know, you see on social media, he often does kind of make a reference to politics used to be like this, where the left used to care about economics. You know, mm. he, you know, he does kind of make a version of this, of a, of a version of the sort of end of history argument that it's like in the mid 20th century, you know, the left cared about, you know, material economic questions. Now all they want to do is, you know, you know, a, a intense culture war mind programming of your children. Um, and 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 you know they're all elites anyway. So in some sense, you could say that he has that that that. And Trump obviously, you know, spoke to that kind of you know 1950s. You know, occasionally would 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 um, evoke that. But I feel like that was very haphazard and is not really central to their project either. Because um, I think it's what's what's a you know I don't I don't think. I don't think that Trumpism is primarily about nostalgia. I mean, maybe I'm wrong, but I feel like it's primarily about, in the sense that maybe all grievance and discontent, you know, is about, you know, Corey, I guess, would argue this in Reactionary Mind, that it's about the experience of dispossession in some way. So in that, in that sort of meta sense, perhaps, that, you know, there is this kind of imagined America of, you know, of, uh, you know, of kind of 
you know, greater freedom and equality and status um, that is now being, you know, that liberals are destroying. But I still feel like the dominant impulse isn't to evoke that. It's, it's, it doesn't really require a history to kind of, or a, or a, or even a really full fleshed out nostalgia to kind of evoke that grievance because the libs are annoying on their own terms. You know, they don't need to be contrasted to, you know, 1953. Yeah, no, I think that's, I think that's probably right. Um, Though it it does mean that I guess this compounds the end of history problem in terms of there being a lack of historical imagination all around. I mean, what I want to say sort of self-critically is I find myself writing this piece being, you know, really fatigued, you know, fatigued with the, with the, with the 1619 view of the world. And, you know, I don't know, moving almost in reaction to it towards almost a more full-throated defense of various kinds of, you know, um, movementist golden ages, not, not exact golden age is the wrong word, but to, to, to genuine nostalgia for mass politics of whether it be in the 19th or 20th century of some form. And, I do feel like it's that kind of, if anything, I don't know, you guys have t- talked about this in different contexts too, but that, you know, left populism, which I'm still a kind of a forlorn celebrant of, um, was, I think, in some ways, even if it never really got a chance to enumerate all of this, for me, it was deeply connected to, uh, if not a nostalgia, but a sort of a, a, a the model of 19th and 20th century mm. style, you know, masses in motion kind of idea of politics that, you know, in the anti-slavery movement. And this is, the, this is why I'm trying to write a book on, you know, anti-slavery before the Civil War and how it, this movement went from a kind of a radical marginal vanguard thing to a mass movement, which, you know, took power through electoral you know, um, mass democratic struggle, um, you know, in an election in 1860. And I do find that I, you know, it, it, if somebody were to say, yeah, you're romanticizing, you know, the, the civil war era or other people are romanticizing social democracy, I feel like it's probably true that we're, we are more romantic about it in some sense than, than either 1619 style liberals or cynical style, D'Souza style conservatives. Yeah, I yeah, and 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 it also, I mean, I don't have an answer to, I you know, I I'm I waver on on the question of you know if history is to return because of course our proposition is not that history is back, um, maybe politics right. has returned in some form, but you know we're very much it's a double negative, it's the end of the end of history, um, so the complacency and consensus politics is gone. There's a huge amount of turbulence, but there's no sense of um history beginning again and and really the the banner of freedom being waved by anyone um and the, and certainly the 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 kind of sub, you know collective subject for that is absent as well um so we're just you know we're confronted with that absence and i kind of in in talking about you know here history in term in the sense of the past whether the restarting of history demands a sustained engagement with the past, to reconnect it with past struggles and trace a line of continuity, which was broken by the end of history, or alternatively, you think that the end of history is such a an interruption, right? And, and the interruption even to the left and right, and that maybe even those terms should be abandoned, and that for progress in the future, you kind of need you need to have a, a year zero, you know, that, that there's too much that's been broken about the past that we can't even find a connection to it. And that tracing a line of continuity of the left or of socialism even perhaps is, is, is not the way to, 
to, to restart history or to start the wheel turning again? I think that's exactly the dilemma that I wrestle with all the time, Alex. And I feel like temperamentally, emotionally, like in the marrow of my bones, I'm reaching for that first alternative, mm-hmm. you know, that more romantic and kind of, if you will, my own kind of historicist impulse, because that feels right and real and good and true to me, you know, to sort of, you know, re- the need to re-evoke these movements. But there is a kind of a colder, drier part of my brain that's like, no, you can't rerun this tape again. This is not, you know, the 21st century is not going to look like the 19th in any way. And, you know, it might be, you know, it might be, a you know, you, your book on you know, detailing, you know, the the rise of the Republican Party and mass anti-slavery might be a nice beach read, but it's not going to actually provide even a conceptual, let alone um, uh, a kind of material toolkit for the struggles that we need in this, in this, you know, much more, yeah, much more atomized, animized sort of, um, uh, you know, decollectivized, you know, politics of, of the current moment yeah no that's right and i, I mean i went I, I recall actually like alex gurovich kind of friend of the podcast making a point yeah. kind of slightly critically in response to our kind of end of the end of history thesis at least making the point that he doesn't buy that the that history has restarted um and that the case for that would rest and he think that the one example that you could draw upon to sustain the case that there might be history restarting is certain thinkers going back to first principles and thinking about what the nature of freedom would be in the 21st century. Um, And that um, I find kind of compelling or at least kind of, yeah, you know, you think, well, this is a way of kind of closing the book on (laughs) closing the book on the 20th century in a way and going, you have to kind of rethink these, rethink these very basic questions from the start rather than trying to, you know, plumb the past and uh, have the, the the weight of dead dead generations weigh on our minds. You know. Yeah, I mean, I, I'd like to. I honestly feel a little under underread and under you know considered on that second hypothesis, which often it gets brandished by you know people who seem to me so obviously ideologically opposed to what I stand for that yeah. that I don't trust them at all. Like you know, the people who are always banging on about social democratic nostalgia who, you know, et cetera, et cetera, you know, either from a, from a, you know, a sort of ultra radical perspective or from a, from a, from a centrist perspective, you know, from a, from a sort of a neoliberal, you know, perspective, I don't trust either of those interpretations. And they're often the ones who are kind of, you know, you know, chastising the sort of romantic nostalgia uh, for, you know, social, you know, socialist mass politics. So, but when when that project is kind of proposed by by an ideological I don't know simpatico, then I am I'm, I'm I'm more open to thinking in that way. Um, I think in the short term, though, I mean, yeah, I mean, I don't know. The best sign of the return of politics, the return of history, for me is would be, you know, maybe it was the Staten Island, you know, uh, Amazon vote. You know, mm. there's just if if there's if there's any, I mean, I think there's still really really grave reasons to be skeptical about the revival of a new labor movement. But there at least seems to be a little bit more action in that field than there is in the electoral field at the moment. Yeah, no, I think that's I think that's fair. I, one thing that we discussed actually in, in reference to that, because we were discussing the Canadian truckers with a recent guest, Ashley Frawley, and mm. um, there there was a case that, you know, there there was a 
with the Canadian truckers, however contradictory and whatever that it was, there was a call for freedom and, a and an attempt to be directly political um, in the way that some of the workers' struggles don't necessarily, however valid and defensible and, and you know, uh, whatever they might be. And I think that's something that, that I guess needs to be explored a bit further um, because I am skeptical of a sort of, of a certain sort of workerism or economism in the saying, well, you know, if labor struggles restart, that that will be it. Because I think that could be recaptured pretty easily. I mean, there's not really, um, there's not really an attempt to break free from, from the kind of current constraints, or at least a savvy enough politician could kind of try to, try to incorporate those demands in a way that would, um, would appease them. For sure. I mean, I just still think it would be a good, it would be a much better problem to have than the, than the current problem. And I do sort of feel like that, that, you know, it, it is it's sort of a question of scale. If a labor, if, if, you know, if you actually saw a increase in union density, you know, in key industries in the United States, that would, to me, that would portend, you know, even if inevitably it would be manipulated and attempted to be sort of, you know, contained by the, the existing political class, it would, it would still reflect uh, a kind of a different form of momentum than anything we've seen in the last, you know, 50 years, let alone, you know, 20 or 30. And, you know, that would cut against the grain of a larger, I mean, because in some sense, I mean, your, your periodization is really about the Cold War. But I think, you know, another a kind of a more meta conception of what the end of history is, it really would begin even earlier, begin with the kind of, you know, if you want to talk about the forces of atomization and decollectivization of, you know, civic and, you know, labor, you know, labor, labor kind of collectivities, that would kind of, that would really start to fall off in the, in the, as early as the sixties, you know, yeah. by, yeah. by 70, 73 is the end of history, you know, quite possibly. Yeah. Yeah. No. And I, and I think arguably that is, you know, you know, just for me, to me, a more persuasive kind of timeline of, of the moment we're in, you know, and that, you know, it's, you know, the, the shortest short 20th century is a very compelling, um, is a compelling, um, you know, numerically compelling, and I guess ideologically compelling, especially if you're a communist like Eric Hobsbawm, you know, and you want to kind of bookend it with the Soviet experience. But I think if you're thinking about, you know, the sort of Anglo-American driven, you know, West, the timeline might be, ultimately might be a bit different. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and though I guess the temptation there would still be to avoid the sense of or writing of a history where it's a series of defeats and declines, because that also um, is our, I guess, our own version of painting, um, painting history black, right? Um, yeah. So either, you know, you either have the glory days the of, of you know, the post-war era, which, you know, I I'm, I'm, don't think you can recapture, or you have a, you have you have a vision which um, itself is all downhill since the failure of the German Revolution, um, which, right. which is also right. a kind of difficult history to 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 mobilize, I guess, in your favor. Um, but maybe we should uh, leave this here, unless you want to add something. On this, on this depressing, leave it here in terms of you know which which historiography or periodization of decline do you choose? Yeah, yeah, yeah no, well, are, yeah, are I, you I a nineteen nineteen er? 
are you a, you know, are you a 19, you know, 46er? Are you a 1973er? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. No, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And, and, you know, you can stake out a whole range of political positions based on, on the date that you choose. Um, but this has been really interesting. I, yeah, I, again, have to recommend to listeners to, to actually read the essay as a whole, because it's, it's fantastic. Um, and I think there's still a lot to be explored in terms of liberals turn to this sort of new historicism and, and the rights abandonment of history. I think that's a pretty profound change that's going on and probably not just in, um, in the U S and not just in reference to slavery, but, um, but across the West. So anyway, thank you Thanks, very much. Alex. This has been great. Yeah. Me, I really enjoyed it. Hello, we're back. Um, I found that conversation really interesting with Matt. I was so stimulated by his essay originally, and I was like, wow, damn, we have to have to get him on and talk to him about this. And I guess the first thing that sprung to mind in a kind of more obvious political sense about the sort of debates that go on today, and there's a point that we've made on this podcast before that liberals seem to be unable to take the W, as they say, to take the win, except that there has been substantial progress on uh, racial issues, on gender, on sexuality, and to say, hey, this is a good thing, we've won, basically, right? There might be little pockets of bigotry and resistance here and there, but basically, uh, you know, social liberals have won, and that's a good thing. Instead, they need to, uh, you know, kind of hysterically say that it's coming, it's all coming back, or it hasn't been defeated, that we still have the old racism and so on. Um, and that's a weird um, use of, of the past, I think. I mean, I, I think it's, uh, you know, completely illegitimate, really. Yeah. It's also that classic, the kind of classic liberal faith in progress in the kind of um, continual improvement, that kind of whiggishness that's completely been reversed. Yeah. You know, it's like the continual getting shittiness or like things which are um, impossible to change. Um, so it's, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a, I thought it was a, yeah, it was a good discussion. And this was one of the, one of the best bits of it was, was Matt's kind of very, yeah, I think it's very accurate to identify liberalism as having a completely moralized attitude to the past today. I don't like it. So by, for example, taking down a statue, I can change it. It's like, basically, it's something which um, it's up for grabs, but not in a political sense, just in a purely, purely moral one. I mean, it might be worth like reflecting back on discussions that we had kind of back in the summer of 2020, for example, around the you know, iconoclasm of, of tearing down statues. And I mean, I remember arguing that, that that was a way of whitewashing the past for the purposes of the present. Oh, no, you know, the past is gone. There was no nasty thing that happened. Um, we're all good now. We're, you know, but actually what Matt argues in his essay is kind of the opposite. It's a sense that like, no, look, the past was really terrible and we're still in that terrible past. I think, I mean, it, it, it's a changed relationship to public memory. So I don't think when, you know, the pe people were pulling down statues that they imagined themselves to be um, wiping the slate clean. They thought, you know, rather they, I think they cast themselves in the modes of um, resisting, an ex you know, resisting an existing regime. Um, but the effect, I think, will be given the way in which kind of um, there'll be such difficulty and complexity and impossibility, in fact, of public commemoration um, particularly of, you know, casting figures in a heroic mould. And this has been the debate in Britain over the notorious kind of fourth plinth in Trafalgar Square. There's this constant tedious debate about what 
is what kind of meaningful piece of public art can um, stand there to represent Britain today. Um, and so I think, you know, the effect will be that they weren't intending to wipe the slate clean, but the effect will be that we're better than countries that haven't gone through these processes. You know, we're better than the Russians um, or the Chinese, for instance, by the fact that at least we've kind of gone through this process of mm. historical doubt and questioning. That will be its political effect, even if that wasn't, you know, foremost in the minds of the mobs who were tearing down statues, that will be its ultimate political effect they have um, made possible. A new kind of um, moral confidence, I think, and a new ability to um, be chauvinistic towards other states and countries that haven't gone through these woke purges. The other element, I mean, I think, which perhaps is was, um, I mean, I liked very much Matt's idea of the right as effectively put um, in the role of trolling with respect to the past. Um, but the element which I think was lacking a bit was um, the dynamic between liberalism and the left, because it seems to me the point about there are two things with liberalism which were kind of left out of the discussion. One is it's with relation to specific kinds of things that they're concerned with perpetuating the past, you know, with race in particular and in America in particular. So it's not necessarily kind of a... Um, an entire reorientation to in terms of the way in which they relate to the past, but only on specific kinds of things. And so I think that question of why is it that they relate to the historical past on the question of race in particular, but not necessarily on other aspects, you know, say, I don't know, like, um, you know, a similar kinds of thing with um, patriarchy and family, right? Constantly, they recreate the idea that we live in some kind of buttoned up, prim and prudish 1950s from which they will emancipate us. You know, that is also so it's over only on specific things that they relate to the past in this particular way. And I think what's happened is that they've effectively annexed the default posture of the radical left with relation. So the idea that we don't, you know, that uh, we don't exist in a society that is um broadly progressing in the right direction, but that there are these historical legacies which have not been properly dealt with. And liberals having adopted that kind of um, populist radicalism of the left, which is particularly associated with the American new left, I think that is um, the yeah. element that was perhaps overlooked in um, both by in uh, Matt's essay, but also in your discussion with him. No, I think that's right. And then obviously, I guess, you know, further, even further over to the left, the disconnection from the past is that there isn't really a sense of a trajectory or a cycle of struggles or something to which you might appeal, which of course has been in some ways the, often the problem of, of the radical left in that it becomes a historical reenactment society and, you know, um, falls apart on debates about, uh, you know, Kronstadt or whatever, right? Um, whereas I guess with the new left, it ushered in a, a sort of a rather different attitude and it's, you know, and it's inheritors, the inheritors of the new left ushered in a different attitude to history. Is that, I mean, is that, would you agree with that? I think. Well, I mean, it's the, the new left, you know, I mean, it was kind of, um, it would belonged or overlapped at least significantly with the era of the civil rights struggles. Right. And in came also in the backwash of those struggles. And so it was very significantly shaped by them and also their kind of reverberations elsewhere in the West and also, I suppose, in the wider world. So, um, you know, it's kind of still stuck in the fact that the, um, 
that the you know the left hasn't emancipated itself from the new left so it's still stuck in that default frame and it's that that has kind of been annexed and absorbed by contemporary liberalism um even though the you know america of 19 you know jim crow america is long gone yeah and so i mean the political question is why right so why why does liberalism why does it have to um why does it exist or can only kind of sustain itself by creating um these false images of contemporary society of yeah. um you know kind of 1950s in terms of our family structures and sexual kind of mores and on the one hand and um you know jim crow or worse you know kind of the confederacy still lives um, with respect to race relations? Well, I think in the interview, Matt gave a, a, a potential answer to that, that kind of political question when he was talking about the political logic of claims like the 1619 project. This idea is that this, the strongest critique of capitalism is that it's tied up with the worst possible moral crime we can think of, slavery in this case. And so it kind of, it appears like it's a structural mm. critique, but it's actually a moral one. And I think that's, that's I, I found that quite a compelling point that you know that's the way you present things as kind of weirdly eternal kind of genetic it's part of dna and then you you kind of go to history to find that genetic component or whatever yeah. but the the kind of political sleight of hand is almost that it appears to be a structural critique but it's really just a moral one but i mean it's interesting because then you know you could say that liberals today like, you know, kind of contemporary embodiment of liberalism, certainly amongst kind of our generation, millennials, there's still some kind of older liberals who who um, stand, who are a bit different from that. And I actually remember, um, you know, so if you think, for example, of like, I don't know, you know, John Stewart, um, you know, the, the comedian and TV host, um, him, he himself, who's been marginalized, represents a kind of slightly older form of liberalism, who, you know, was more about kicking up against powerful people, maybe defensive, defend free speech and so on. Um, whereas the new liberals are all, you know, woke um, establishmentarians, I suppose. Um, and like that. But anyway, yeah. so I mean, at, at least amongst the kind of new woke liberalism um, today, they're not progressives. You know, obviously we, they're called progressives. People call them that. But I think they're better called tragics rather than progressives because they have a, you know, a cyclical view of history or an understanding that it's all, uh, you know, a series of oppression and whatever from which they never really believe that we'll be free. They want this perennial battle against oppression and they have to go and find that, go find some deplorables who said something racist and so on. So really they're tragics. They're not progressives. Well, or maybe they're dramatics because they like drama. Yeah. Yeah, that's, I mean, yeah, I think that's a fair, yeah, the, the yeah, melodramatics, I don't know. Anyway, well, I think, I mean, there's another element to this, though. It's not just that the um, the racial racial liberalism allows for this new kind of racial liberalism allows for what appears as a structural critique. I think it's also to do with how it allows for a it serves. A particular kind of globalized capitalism in undercutting existing in existing political institutions, particularly um, national and democratic ones. So, you know, when you have, for instance, I mean, I was very struck by this, but when you have, for instance, I saw a video, I'm sure many listeners have seen it. There's a clip of um, Facebook executives on their um, telling in their headquarters in California, tellingly called the campus, right? Where they, before they launch into some kind of seminar, they acknowledge the 
um, land rights of the indigenous American claims to the, you know, Californian kind of headquarters of Facebook. And this was something which has, you know, been lifted directly from woke academic um, conferencing right into Silicon Valley kind of um, meeting functions and boardroom kind of uh, um, practice. And so to take this example, right, they've taken the kind of one of the most extreme radical critiques of America as a genocidal, racist, colonial settler state and adopted it as the opening gambit of, um, of um, you know, like I say, kind of bordering practice. And what they're doing there is saying, right, that the... Um, that America doesn't actually belong to people who live and work in America. It doesn't belong to the citizens of America, right? And so I think that's the other element that is that is um, facilitated by the radical left critique, the historical kind of critique, which was mounted by the radical left and now has been kind of absorbed into woke capitalism. And that's something, again, which I think is um, that was uh, missing in the discussion is that the political kind of purpose is not just a kind of a, it doesn't it's not just a faux structural critique. It serves a particular kind of capitalist dispensation, which undercuts political claims. Right? Yeah. So are, no, you, are you suggesting that we should start all podcast episodes, all seminars with a, an acknowledgement of working class labor? That has gone into all of the things that we're using to record um, um be, that would be annoyingly performative but also kind of interesting uh, yeah listeners that's, let us that's know Phil's, that's, that's Phil's a terrible brand. idea yeah um anyway I, to, to go back to kind of where we where we were i mean or to follow kind of a, a line of argument was is that this question about how we relate to the past and the future is bound up by fear and of course one of the Issues that we've been discussing over the past months uh, in the reading club, kind of following along the syllabus, is precisely, in some ways, the culture and politics of fear and how that relates to emergency politics. And I think that this kind of came to mind in, in you know, kind of hearing back my interview and uh, also doing the readings for the reading club, that um, this kind of fear of the future, I think, is uh, something that's shared across the spectrum, right? Yeah, I like the, the Patty Smith line. I don't fuck much with the past, but fuck plenty with the future. It's a good line. I don't know if I actually agree with it or not, but the, yeah, I mean, in, <clears throat> there is a really pervasive um, tendency to take the worst possible scenario for the, I mean, this is not particularly original point perhaps, but to take the, the um, one we'll explore more in the, the reading club, the worst possible um, eventuality and to, you know, <clears throat> to have a, a, a completely risk averse, um, attitude to the future and you know partly partly does speak to a lack of a lack of authority um a lack of political power and control in the present so you can you can sort of understand exactly how this could could um could come about and i think that you know the, the point around i guess conservatives you might not expect to have a view of the future they're supposed to defend tradition in the past and supposed to be like oh the future we're not sure unless it just is a little bit as you know like the, the present but changes a little bit um but yeah liberals you would you would think would be a bit more optimistic and socialists even more so but socialists are the, are the most ca catastrophic you know political group you can imagine like the world is going to be destroyed that's the that's the vision of the future we're presented by eco-socialism with and and even if you're you know a little bit more you know don't go in for the kind of catastrophist environmental um, prognostications there's still the you know the kind of doomer idea even amongst kind of whatever 
several, I don't know, kind of sharper, more critical Marxists with a sense that it's like, we're all going to hell in a handcart. And I am guilty of that as well, because just the kind of undoing of the gains of the 19th and 20th centuries continues apace. And it doesn't really seem like there's any historical subject who can counter that. So it's, it's hard not to be kind of a bit doomer. Um, yeah, so, the problem, I think, is that you think in terms of gains that are being undone. How do you want to elaborate? Well, just I think, I mean, it's misconceived in some ways to think of gains that, you know, like um, that there are gains that are being uh, that in itself kind of forces you into that conservative kind of defensive posture. That's maybe right? true. Yeah. But I mean, I guess it, it's more that the I mean, I mean that in kind of the civilizational gains, not just um, necessarily yeah, concrete, okay. concrete political victories of, of the workers movement. Um, but anyway, we're, we're maybe we're maybe getting sidetracked because I mean George already mentioned the conservatives, um, the conservatives. But anyway, I mean I think conservatives, at least let's say conservative populism, because um, really the tr the real conservatives today are kind of centrist liberals. I, I think that I think we are all would be all on the same page if we said that. Um, but conservative populists, which have taken over many of the kind of traditional right parties, I mean certainly in the U.S. Um, the Republicans are generally dominated now by by the kind of post-Trump conservative populists. Um, whether what what their attitude is in relation to this discussion about the past and 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 history, because do we buy this idea that they're just basically trolls? I I, I kind of I well, I'm convinced by that because and I think I mentioned this in the interview. Um, Corey Robin made this point in the discussion that we had with him on the podcast a little while ago that the right is fundamentally weak that the bases for its whole ideology are 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 weak and it also has very pop very little popular support and i think this kind of is part of that story that has nothing yeah. to offer other than provocation up to a point i mean i think it's partly there i mean i think it's an accurate characterization both in corey robbins and in um in matt's case the issue is it's um you know i mean part of the reason it's not um i mean i think matt perhaps overplayed it in terms of the uh, political cunning and kind of tactical flexibility and ideological adaptability of the right. And it seems to me it's just so easy. You know, I mean, the left make it so easy and yeah. liberals and the left make it so easy. Um, when you cast um, American history as nothing but this kind of unrelieved uh, narrative of racial oppression, it becomes very easy then to point to, you know, kind of Abraham Lincoln and um, radical abolitionism and what have you. Um, and so the trolling is just me, you know, I mean, it's kind of low hanging fruit, but they're presented with so many opportunities uh, to whack low hanging fruit. You know, why wouldn't they take it? I mean, I Should guess my eat point the is the low hanging fruit. Exactly. You I, think you're, end, I think you're doing fruit wrong. If you're going around <laughs> the low hanging fruit and you're just whacking it, you're supposed to get that low hanging fruit. The point, the, you eat. the point is at the end of the day, um, you know, it, sh it should be no kind. It, it shouldn't really be, um, you know, we don't really need do we or rather. Okay. Let me rephrase. Do we really need to remind ourselves that the right is opportunist, right? I, I, that's fair. Yeah, I have a slightly I, maybe different suggestion here. Is like so. I I, I take the point that the map makes that the past is a grab bag of sharp objects that can be used to zap political opponents, and I think yeah, that's I can sort of see that in the British case as well. But is it not because basically the Liberals have won this this argument? Um, in the recent past, if you want to put it that way, they're essentially the conservative. There's there's nobody really articulate. There are probably still people who are who would want to defend tradition, uh, embrace tradition, etc. 
but they're very marginalized. And so they just don't have a very strong base to with which to um, to kind of make their arguments. It makes me think of the, the National Trust, which is a kind of uh, grand old British uh, charitable organization. And this is kind of all of the, the Tories have their, and, and many other people have like the National Trust sticker on their car windscreen which means they can go and park in all the country houses and go for nice walks and all that sort of thing which actually is a nice way to spend a weekend but anyway these you know this charity's been uh, which you might think is a bastion of like conservative understandings of tradition heritage and all this sort of thing um yeah it's been kind of split apart by um an activist internal kind of um stratum of its employees who's saying we need to have plaques up uh, acknowledging kind of slavery and all these other things in in all these big British country houses, which of course is like all of them have some sort of connection to to a bad a quote unquote bad past. Um yeah, so and you know the National Trust as this organization has basically capitulated on this point. So or Work, workers workers so. died in the make in the building of this building on basically well, every build my, structure. My, my rather long-winded yeah. point was like haven't just the conservatives lost like the liberals won. No, I think that's right. I think that's right. Um, yeah, I think that's right as well. Though I would qualify what you said, George, because I think part of what's um, part of this kind of political fragmentation and intellectual fragmentation we see at the end of the end of history is the revival of a very self-consciously almost kind of extreme conservatism um, in opposition to kind of, you know, gender fluidity and trans. You have like... Um, the um the veneration of the orban um the orban regime in hungary yeah. you have the kind of um, rod dreher as accepted as a kind of uh, spokesperson for a certain kind of conservative outlook um so you know and i mean and but it's also very odd you know i mean he's an he's orthodox christian who kind of um you know uh, uses alistair mcintyre's critiques of modern capitalism um, which is to say that he has no real kind of connection with uh, mainstream religious conservatism in America, which has, you know, been evangelical Protestantism or even not even evangelical, but just Protestantism. So, you know, I think so there is kind of a there is a um, there is a revival, but it's strange and postmodern and camp. In yeah, some respects as I well. think that's right. Yeah. No, that's very well put. Um, just as a, I think a final point to close this off, because we are people of the future, we don't come from the future, but we, I think would say that we'd like to say that we are of the future. Um, Phil is making some sort of sign, which is indicating maybe some sort of wand, like a space wand. Yeah, that's cool, dude. It's a futuristic um, sign language It's a future, sign. exactly, yeah. Um, but anyway, so I think one point that I, that I kind of, um, I don't know, go back and forth over, is whether, you know, the return of history, which is something that we are in favor of um, and militate in favor of, um, whether that requires a kind of sustained engagement with the past, a kind of reconnection with the history of socialism or with um, at least kind of the early socialists or with Marxism in, in the 19th century, um, or if instead we have to kind of been if not the 19th century, certainly been the 20th century and kind of go, let's kind of not forget about it because you have to kind of in some ways redigest that, but, but whether the starting point really has to be kind of like, no, this is a year zero. We can't re we can't kind of salvage anything from the 20th century. And we have to rethink the question of freedom and human, human emancipation afresh from, from our point. Now that was a big, that's a big uh, question. That was a lengthy question and yeah. a big question, but 
I suppose I mean it, I mean I would say um, I would say it's both to some degree. I think all of the, those basic kind of political questions do have to be thought afresh. But at the same time, I mean, you know, as long as we live in capitalism and um, I think and, you know, to the extent that Marx's analysis is right, it's a society that's dominated by the past um, in almost every conceivable dimension. And I mean, and this is something we've explored. I mean, you know, we had an episode um, some a while back talking about how kind of woke is a diluted form of Stalinism. You know, it's recapitulating um, it's kind of Stalinist identity politics from the middle of the 20th century. And I think, my, you know, and that is evident, I think, in the contemporary left as well. So it's a society that's dominated by the past. And in the Marxist analysis, um, you know, it would be the, um, I mean, there's the famous phrase which you used in the discussion with Matt, Alex, about the traditions of the dead generations, but in a more basic structural sense, it's a society which is organized around dead labor, right? Capital. Yeah. The domination of capital is the domination of dead labor. And so that kind of affects um, every, you know, every institution, every kind of political posture, every outlook. So to the extent that is, um, you know, we're ruled by the past, as long as we're um, in capitalist society, we're dominated by the past in a very basic and important sense. So but I have a escaping it. Yeah, I have a I have a gloss on this, which is that like so the the commodity is like the dead, dead labor dominating living labor, the past dominating the present. It's basically like this is the experience of having a hangover like your present is dominated by by your past your present like state is dominated by your past drinking so under capitalism we're all like hungover historically all, all the time the only and, and, and the way that people treat this is hair of the dog which is the wrong answer they, which is to say <laughs> conservatism they drinking it's just conservatism exactly or, so so what's know. the leftist, what's the problem with the way leftists deal with the historical hangover then? If conservatives take care of the dog, which, you know, occasionally is an attractive option on a hangover, what is the liberal and historic and left versions of that? I think the only reliable hangover cure is, is not drinking. So what's that? That would be, yeah, year zero, just like delete all the past. <laughs> there you go. I'm not sure how far um, this metaphor the analogy will, will take, will take us, but... Um... I, I, I like to go for a run, you know, um, kind of clear, clear out. That's oh fat. That's God, fascist. That's the worst. That's, <laughs> that's the like worst. Yes, bodily that activity. is the fascist response. Yeah, that is the worst possible response to a hangover. And I'm very disappointed in you, Alex. That is the fascist response. Uh, coffee, coffee. So what's the that's liberal the, response? That's the... You accelerate towards the future. Anyway, I should um, have thought that through a little bit more mm. before. I mean, it, it, I think it's fitting that, that, like, I, I, I give this, like, probably too grave and serious big question and that we have responded to it with um yeah jokes about hangovers this is a podcast after all no i think um so just just a, a more serious point i think the the, <clears throat> the discussions around brexit were very interesting for me because i you know it made me p kind of pick up some you know some books which i had bought and pretended to read but actually hadn't read um on like you know 17th century english history and i was like yeah actually i now i can i can now read this because it's it applies to me more it made um, you a patriot george is that what you're saying it made me uh, so it was saint george's day um on just just gone in this country so i was very disappointed not to get get more saint george's day cards which i did used to did used to get um but yeah so that's just another example of how history's in all our, all our lives all the time 
etc. <laughs> That's good. They'd finish with some platitudes. Um, yeah, I, I don't know. I don't know if we want to carry on this discussion. Maybe we're running out of steam on this, um, but maybe it's something that we should return to in a, in a more kind of concrete and deliberate fashion, not just as a kind of big open question, but to really yeah, think no, about sorry, how just... to position ourselves in relation to the history of the left, the history of socialism and so on. One one final point is that there's a there's a good uh, good book called Ends in Sight by Gregory Elliott, which has some some kind of basically the the analysis of things Perry Anderson, Fukuyama, Hobsbawm. So like three historians, all in terms of like and the things relates to Matt Sesto as well. Like what does it mean for history to have an end? What are these different sorts of ends? And you know what does this mean for I guess thinking about history and historiography and all these sorts of things today. That sounds good. I haven't read that. And we'll uh, add that to the show. Oh, well, even better. We'll add that to the show notes. Um, okay, listeners, uh, we hope you've enjoyed this. We hope you found it as thought provoking as we did kind of reading Matt's essay and everything. So uh, let us know what you think. And just before we go, just a reminder, if you haven't reviewed the podcast anywhere, um, please do. Um, it'll help us gain new listeners. Thank you very much. Catch you next time. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.